0: The time is now. Volume 6, Episode 115. This is Employment Law Now and I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. We know that government agencies have been particularly busy and somewhat vocal over the past year or two as we continue to navigate through all kinds of issues related and unrelated to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. This has also been true with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. And there has been big news coming out of the NLRB recently. One of those newsworthy stories is that its general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, has recently issued a memorandum requesting that the board find that captive audience meetings held by employers constitute an unfair labor practice under the national labor relations act unless certain assurances are given to employees with respect to their required attendance at those meetings the position taken by general counsel abruzzo appears to represent a disagreement with prior board decisions that have held that an employer does not violate the nlra when it requires employees to attend meetings at which the employer urges employees to reject union representation. What is the reason for the General Counsel's position on this issue and what is the actual scope of that position? Well, who better to answer those questions than the individual who issued that memorandum itself? The NLRB's General Counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, who Was so gracious enough to stop by employment law now for a few minutes to discuss this and other topics general counsel abruzzo thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it
1: thanks for having me mike
0: so you assumed office as the general counsel for the nlrb uh last summer in july 2021 becoming uh, the first woman to ever serve as the board's general counsel Although I think many believe that July 2021 was your first involvement with the board, you have actually spent a good portion of your professional career at the NLRB, isn't that right? Yes,
1: yeah, that's right. And and actually, I'm the second woman uh, to be general counsel. But yeah, I spent a oh. uh, spent a lot a lot of time uh, with the agency in various capacities, from field attorney uh, in Miami, uh, supervisory field attorney, deputy regional attorney, and then uh, made my way to D.C. and as uh, many, many different positions, including uh, Deputy GC and Acting GC and now GC.
0: So what drove you to want to give so much to public service and be a part of a government body like the NLRB for so long?
1: So, the I mean, it's wonderful being a public servant. And I've always been driven by trying to help as many people as possible. That's, you know, how my parents raised me. Wanting to give back to communities, and I felt I could do it on a broader scale, uh, and and I think I am. Uh, of course, the NLRB is a, a great agency. It's my family. Um, we are all super committed. It's 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 small enough, you know. It's independent. It's not a cabinet level agency, and so there's not necessarily the red tape or bureaucracy that there might otherwise be, uh, and we are able to accomplish a great deal. Uh, and our board agents are just awesome everywhere, both in headquarters and in the field, just trying to make sure that we are protecting workers' rights and enforcing our uh, congressional mandate. So, um, yeah. And, and you know, the thing is, is what we're tr- we try to do, uh, and we do it very successfully, is we are accessible to workers in this country. They don't get, you know, an automated phone message, uh, you know, we're available, we have information officers, I mean, the pandemic, it was a little tricky, uh, and, and more things were done uh, virtually, but uh, we really, truly do believe in an in-person presence. And, you know, certainly, we are trying to help workers, all workers around this country, including essential workers that are there in person helping us each and every day. So I feel that it's incumbent upon us and the government as a whole to be there for them.
0: And before I get to a couple of the real big ticket items that I know people would love to hear about, uh, I just want to uh, ask you a quick question about how the NLRB works essentially. you know, When we hear or read about guidance or initiatives from other agencies like the EEOC, we hear largely from the commissioners themselves. When it when it comes, however, to the NLRB and what's been going on, um, we've been getting a lot of news uh, from you directly. What what is your role as general counsel of the NLRB, and what is the relationship between you and the board in terms of you know policy and initiatives?
1: Right. So so uh, you know as you as you as you know the agency is bifurcated. So the board handles the adjudicatory and most recently rulemaking functions, and the general counsel—that's me. Uh, And the board is made up of five board members, Uh, the general counsel side, uh, and I am the general counsel, there's only one of me, Uh, we handle um, the Uh, investigatory, prosecutorial, compliance work, settlement work, outreach work. Predominantly, I oversee all of the uh, field offices. We've got 48 field offices around the country. uh, And uh, I also oversee uh, the mission critical and mission support offices in headquarters. Uh, So the vast majority of the agency operations falls under the GC's purview. uh, in, in in answer to the second part of your question, I have been putting out a lot of memos, uh, their guidance memos, I try to be extremely transparent for everyone, my goals are to educate to protect and to enforce. And part of the memos is to educate workers, but also Employers and unions about workers' rights under the statute and em- employers and unions' responsibilities under the statute, but those are guidance memos, and uh, I am looking uh, in uh, in many of those cases to have the board reconsider current board law, uh, and um, and hopefully the board will take. Take those up; those those issues that I've raised. Uh, but until, unless, and until the board actually agrees with me, it is not considered board law.
0: Great, no, and and so let's start. Uh, let's get right into them, um, and we can start with the most recent. Uh, in early April, you issued a memorandum addressing captive audience and other mandatory meetings. Uh, And right at the beginning of that memorandum, you take the position that required meetings, and and I want to quote to make sure I get this right, inherently involve an unlawful threat that employees will be disciplined or suffer other reprisals if they exercise their protected right not to listen to such speech, end quote. What prompted you to issue that memorandum?
1: So, uh, you know, unfortunately, we were seeing... um, you know, there's been a rise in the representation case petitions that have been filed or we've had a uptick of 57% for the first six months of this year, fiscal year compared to last fiscal year. Um, and unfortunately, and, and you may know this through uh, a case called Two Sisters, there was a footnote about the fact that uh, around 90% of all of our representation cases uh, in in those cases, their uh, workers are subject to captive audience meetings. Um, oftentimes, unfortunately, there are threats made during those meetings, uh, which are unfair labor practice practices uh, in and of themselves. But it, I felt it really was important uh, to kind of tackle this issue. We've heard from many workers how afraid they are to not listen uh, to things that they don't want to hear but you know because they're economically dependent upon their employer they don't have a choice so what i've said in the memo is you know uh one of this section seven uh provides the right to self-organize to join support or assist a union to uh choose a collective bargaining representative if if you want to uh to negotiate on on your behalf with your employer to act collectively for the purpose of mutual aid or protection or to refrain from engaging in all of those activities. And Section 8C, uh, which which, um, was also amended into the statute in 1947, um, provided uh, uh, codified, I would say First Amendment free speech rights to some extent in that it allows for the expression of views, opinion and argument uh, about issues Uh, as long as there is no threat of reprisal or, or force or a grant of benefit. And then just finally, I'll say, as you know, Section 8A1 prohibits employers from restraining, coercing, or otherwise interfering with employees' Section 7 rights. And so one of those Section 7 rights, as I said, is the right to refrain So in my opinion, by employers mandating on working time that their economically dependent workers attend meetings where the workers are subjected to, you know, whether it be anti-union rhetoric or some other um, discussion about the workers' exercise of their Section 7 rights, that the workers should be able to uh, exercise their right to refrain from going or their right to leave the meeting without fearing that they're going to be disciplined or discharged or some other adverse action will take place. So I think just these mandatory meetings are inherently, uh, it are, is an inherent, there's an inherent threat of reprisal uh, uh, by by uh, requiring it uh, uh, now, I will say, and I, I've said se- I said it I said it this morning uh, in a, at another engagement, uh, and I said it in the memo. You know, certainly there's their employers can mandate meetings with their workers when they're talking about job responsibilities or health and safety or protocols or other sorts of things, and that's not a problem. It's only when they're mandating the meeting where workers have to listen to let's say, anti-union discussions when they don't want to. You know, they feel very strongly about unionization and they don't want to attend, but they are forced to attend because it's mandated. And if they don't attend, as I said, something could happen to them they will be considered insubordinate and whatever. So I think that employers, if they want to uh, do this, they should make the meetings voluntary and give assurances you know, the meetings happen outside of any hostility uh, and they give assurances that it is voluntary, that you don't have to go. If you come, you can leave, that, you know, there'll be no, no uh, adverse actions taken against you or no grants. And that's how I feel, uh, whether the the board will ultimately agree with me. I don't know, but um, that's the position that I'm taking.
0: And so you, I don't think your position is saying that employers cannot require employees to attend any meeting where there's going to be a discussion about terms and conditions of work, correct? That's
1: correct. That's right. I mean, of course they can, as I said, you know, if you've got, you you have a meeting and you want to talk about, you know, certain job responsibilities or orientations or, Health and safety measures, or any number of things. Uh, it's only when those meetings shift to employers, uh, um, uh, workers' uh, exercise of their Section 7 rights that, to me, it becomes a problem because then, you know, by mandating it, you don't afford the worker the
0: opportunity to refrain from listening. And so would that also include if an employer wants to uh, require that employees attend meeting X and uh, during that meeting, even if that may not have been the stated purpose, uh, an employer wants to make a, a, a statement about its belief that employees would be better off without a union.
1: Right. And I think there, you know, there, there could be, situa- like you just said, there may be situations where it's a dual purpose meeting or it somehow comes up. And I think, you know, it's perfectly fine, as I said, for the employer to mandate, you know, uh, talking about certain s- specific job responsibilities. But once it veers into that other sphere, uh, then the employer can say, hey, I'm going to talk about this. But, you know, if you don't want to listen, feel free to get up and walk out you know, we're not going to, we won't retaliate against you for doing so, but I am going to start like engaging on why I think it might not be appropriate for this workplace.
0: So key is really the mandatory versus uh, not mandatory, as opposed to just looking at the speech or the nature of the speech itself. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, You've also come out and taken a strong position on union elections. Um, What do you believe is the current problem with union elections and what do you believe needs to be done to fix them?
1: So I'm not sure what you mean by strong position there. Um, I, you know, as I said earlier, I, um, we have had a 57% increase in uh, election petitions being filed. I, um, I certainly don't think that we should be an obstacle. This agency should be an obstacle in ensuring that workers, if they so choose, organize or otherwise uh, select or designate a collective bargaining representative. Uh, And so um, the one area that I can say, and so we're doing all we can to make sure that we're processing petitions as quickly as we can. We are underfunded. We've been flatlined for nine years. We are understaffed. Uh, and so we are tr- We are doing everything we can with the budgetary constraints that we have. And I have to give a shout out to our board agents, particularly in the field, but also in headquarters that are just so dedicated in doing everything they can to make sure that we are fully um, protecting workers' rights and enforcing our statute. Uh, I, I will say the, the one area along these lines um, is that uh one thing that I'm asking the board to reconsider is a doctrine that was in place from 1949 to 1969, and it's called the Joy Silk Doctrine. And in that case, um, for that, for those two decades, uh, the board said, look, if a union comes with um, evidence of that they enjoy majority support in an appropriate unit, uh, and they want to, sh- you know, they say uh, we have demonstrable evidence, typically it'll be through Cards that say, you know, uh, that 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 evidence uh, that that the those particular workers support union representation, um, uh, and of that particular union, um, it could be other evidence as well. And uh, under this doctrine, if the employer did not have a good faith doubt of majority status. The uh, employer was to recognize the uh, union as the, uh, uh, the selected um, collective bargaining representative for the workers in that particular workplace, and then bar- bargain in good faith with the with that uh, collective bargaining representative. And you know, I, I've been I've been accused of 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 uh, kind of bringing this back to life as a, as a sort of uh, path to card check. Uh, you know, either you know, EFCA failed and somehow, you know, I'm trying to do it through the back door, which is not the case at all. My goals and frankly, during the period, the two decades that Joyce Silk was in effect, there were some additional bargaining orders. Sure. When employers did not have a good faith doubt of majority uh, support um, and and of course there could be good faith doubt. You could say, look, you've got supervisors that you're including in this unit, or the the scope should include, you know, more stores, or you know, or these the signatures all look the same to us, or whatever the case may be. There could be reasons why there's good faith doubt, but uh, but but there and we've seen many cases where there's not good faith doubt, and what the And and what the employers have done in those cases is they only, uh, their sole purpose in not recognizing the union is so they can undermine employee choice Uh, and, uh, and, and often do so by engaging in unfair labor practices during the period of time when a representation case uh, petition is filed and before the election is held, including captive audience meetings where um, unfair labor practices occur. And so uh, basically during the, 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 the time period that Joyce was in effect, there were more bar- bargaining orders, but there were more, many more elections that were conducted that were free From any unfair labor practices. And that's my goal. My goal is I want employees to have free choice. I do not want them to be coerced by anyone. And I certainly don't want our processes to be abused so that you can undermine that free choice, uh, particularly when we don't have the resources, uh, that we need. So, um, and, but even if we did have all the resources in the world, still our job is, is, is to ensure that, um, we're promoting, uh, free, uh, for exercise of, uh, free choice for, for employees Greater. to improve their working conditions.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. That's, uh, that's, that's helpful. I've got one more question for you. And again, I really appreciate your time uh, today. No
1: problem.
0: So, you know, looking forward now, uh, here we are, it's hard to believe we're just about in the middle of 2022 already. Um, what can employers and employees, for that matter, expect to see from the NLRB from a priority standpoint as we get to the second half of 2022 and beyond?
1: Yeah, so I don't know what the board members, uh, hopefully you'll see some board decisions uh, come out that are, you know, respond to some of the um, uh, briefings that I've done for them to reconsider some significant um, board precedent. Um, I can tell you on uh, the GC side, well, a few things. I mean, we have done a tremendous job and we will continue to, and, and our, Congressional and Public Affairs Office has been phenomenal, uh, you know, just getting us uh, uh, enhancing our social media presence, our Twitter accounts, so we can get more information out there to educate the public about what we do. Because if you don't know what your rights are, uh, then you, you you don't exercise them. And then you certainly don't know that there's an agency available that actually protects those rights. And that, uh, and that we've got 48 of offices around the country that will, you know, assist you, uh, in that regard. Uh, and so we are trying to be very transparent and trying to upgrade our website. So hopefully you'll see on the outreach front and, uh, you'll see, um, uh, improvements and enhancements. I, I will tell you just, uh, um, uh, particularly one of the things that we are doing that your audience might um, be appreciative of is I've been working with the current EEO chair, EOC chair in, uh, I've been engaging with her in coming up with joint guidance that will provide everyone, but in, in particular employers who have been kind of clamoring for this, even when I was deputy general counsel, I tried to get it done then. And, for a variety of reasons it didn't um, and but I'm it's back on my uh, radar screen and as I said we've been engaging to provide joint guidance to everyone I think it will help employers in particular about harmonizing the NLRA and title seven uh, and frankly the ADA and ADA and other statutes that the EEOC um, is in charge of but um, that way you know I certainly believe they can be harmonized without doing damage to either statute. I think that they actually work very well together when workers are allowed to engage in protected concerted activity that in and of itself often helps. And that means, you know, talking with one another, trying to root out, you know, racial discrimination or sexual harassment and certainly by talking with one another and then raising these issues with the employer and hopefully getting uh, redress for that or get corrective measures put in place. I think that that's our goal of ensuring that workers have a voice and are improving their working conditions. And I think it's the goal of the EEOC to make sure that there's, you know, there, when an employer learns of of such, you know, uh, discrimination or harassment or other sorts of activities like that, that that the employer is taking
0: appropriate steps. And there's the commonality when you come to uh, retaliation, also in the same vein.
1: That's right. And we actually, the EEOC, um, the Solicitor's Office at DOL, Wage and Hour at DOL, and the NLRA are are also engaged in our on joint outreach and, in particular, and anti-retaliation summits. We did one in November for the employer community. We did another one in February. We're going to continue to do those again. I think the more we get out there, the more we educate, the more that folks know, like we are looking at this as a whole of government approach. We're not siloed. We're all worker protection agencies. We're sharing information. We're trying to address the conflicts because I think, you know, it just ignores to everyone's benefit, the workers and the businesses that if you can kind of figure out where the problems are and address those problems, you can have you know, productive labor management relations.
0: No question. Uh, National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking a few minutes to, uh, to join us and get the message out to employers and employees. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mike. Take care. Thank,
0: thank you so much. You too. Well, that was incredibly informative and incredibly helpful, uh, I hope, to all of you. Uh, I can't thank General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo of the National Labor Relations Board enough for giving us some of her valuable time to talk about issues that are impacting employers and employees all around the country. Uh, and Don't forget, and we say this all the time, that the National Labor Relations Act and all of these issues uh, when it comes to the NLRB, they don't just apply to unionized facilities, they also apply to non-union facilities as well to the extent a particular act or inaction tends to violate the National Labor Relations Act. So, again, thank you, General Counsel Abruzzo, and thank you as well to all of you who take the time to listen to this podcast. I really appreciate it, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.